Join me for a word of prayer. God, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King this morning. We are in Isaiah. It will be helpful to turn to that passage in your service leaflet. The passage, if you see in verse 4, Isaiah addresses an anxious people. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Uh, and Isaiah's original audience had plenty of reasons for anxiety. We looked at this a little bit last week. They had global, big reasons for anxiety. We thought about uh, the enemies were at the gate. They had economic reasons for anxiety, military reasons for anxiety, big global reasons for anxiety. But I also have to imagine that your average Israelite living in the year 700 BC, when this passage was written, had some far more mundane reasons for anxiety as well. Uh, anxiety about work, anxiety about relatives and children, those more mundane anxieties that occupy our mental energy. We, like them, have plenty of reasons for anxiety. We have big global reasons for anxiety, reasons like, oh, a skim of the headlines from any one month of news. We have environmental worries, gun violence, political turmoil, global recession, just a few of the anxieties that... Uh, global big anxieties that could occupy our energy. In addition to these global anxieties, most of us just have more mundane anxieties as well. Anxieties caused by a concern for a relative. Anxieties about health. Anxieties caused by family coming for the holidays. Anxiety caused by not having the family you want for your holidays. We, we live with anxiety. We live with such a degree of anxiety that we are often anxious when we don't feel anxious. Have you ever had that experience? I'm not worried. I should be worried. I feel like, you know, the Germans are always great about coming up with words. They come up with a word of, uh, to describe the stress that you feel from too many options. They should come up with a word about the stress you feel because you're not stressed. I'm worried. I, I feel like I'm, I should be worried about something. We are so familiar with anxiety, both personally and in our culture, we've forgotten that it's actually not good. It's not good uh, to wake up every morning with a pit in your stomach and knots in your shoulders. Uh, we've forgotten that further, it's not just not good, it's not godly. That anxiety at its best can predispose us to some pretty bad decisions. None of us are at our best when we're anxious. Our decisions are rushed, uh, often made for the wrong reason. And anxiety can lead to some bad decisions at its best. At its worst, anxiety is a bad decision. And anxiety reveals a lack of trust in God's fatherly care and goodness. We're anxious people, every one of us. We all come in with a good portion of our mind occupied with things that just cause us worry. We, like the original audience of Isaiah, are anxious and so Isaiah, through God, through Isaiah, has a good word for us, which is found in verse 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will come and he will come and save you. Now this exhortation to fear not is not like the command of an impatient father telling a frightened child just to stop crying. 
Every good father will open the door to the closet and say, look, child, there's nothing to be afraid of. A good father will explain the reasons why a child need not be afraid. And so Isaiah, like a good father, will explain to us the reasons that we need not fear in this passage. And I want to look at this together. I'm going to make three observations about this passage. All these observations will be grammatical in their nature. Grammar is important. Periods, sentences, pronouns, prepositions, these are all things that influence our communication and shape our communication. So I'm going to make three observations, all of which are grammatical in nature. The first of which is, notice the tense of the verbs. The wilderness shall be glad. It shall blossom abundantly. Uh, The eyes of the blind shall be opened. I count over 20 times the word shall or will occurs in this passage. Now, class, what part of tense is the verb shall or will, past, present, or future? Future tense. The only verb that's actually in the present tense is the exhortation to be strong and to fear not. Why is this important? This observation about the tense of the verb reveals something important. The basis for our strength and for our courage in the present moment, our courage for the present moment is rarely found in the present moment. Our strength, our courage for the travails, for the anxiety of this present moment are either found in reflecting on what God has done in the past, and there's plenty of that in the Bible. Remember, reflect, meditate on what God has done. Or, as is in the case of this passage, our strength for the present moment, our courage for the present moment is based on our anticipation, our trust in what God will do in the future, as is the case in this passage. But the facts of this present moment are never a good reason for our courage. Now, there's a very interesting story from the, I'll illustrate this from a very interesting story from the end of King David's life. At the end of his life, King David, at the very, one of his last things we know is 2 Samuel verse, or chapter 24. Samuel record, takes a census. Seems like a strange thing to do. He counts the people in his kingdom. And I suppose there's many good reasons to count the people in your kingdom, but whatever the motivation was behind David's census, it was wrong, it was bad, and he was punished for it and repented of it. And I believe that we're not told is that his anxiety about the future lurked behind his census in the present. In other words, he wanted to know, have a little certainty. How many people do I have? How much tax revenue will I have? And I think that is interesting because I have observed in myself and I observed in others that when we begin to be anxious about the present moment, we begin to pay a little bit too much attention to those things we can currently see and we can currently measure. The financial manager begins to count and recount the amount of funds in his accounts. The anxious socialite counts the number of friends. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with a king taking a census, a a banker counting his money. But when the information, the statistics of the present moment are sought as a remedy for anxiety, it becomes wrong. 
strength and courage for the anxiety of the present moment lies in remembering what God has done in the past or what God will do in the future, never by weighing, never by measuring this present moment. Tense describes the timing of an action. Isaiah uses the future tense to encourage those in present anxiety. Next grammatical term, ready class, voice. Tense describes when an action occurs. The voice of a sentence describes the relation between the subject and the action. So you are supposed to use the active voice, Bob Bakes. The subject does the action. Notice in this prophecy and in most prophecies, the passive voice is used, which means the subject is acted upon. The cake is being baked. We're not told who the actor is, that, that the subject is being acted upon. Look with uh, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. I think there's an implied made that shall be made glad. The wilderness is not making itself glad. Someone, someone unknown is acting upon the wilderness to make it glad. Verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The blind are not opening their own eyes. The deaf are not unstopping their own ears. Someone is unstopping them, opening them. Who is the unknown someone? Well, no surprise, God. God will come, verse 4, and he will make the wilderness bloom. He will unstop the deaf ears. He will open the blind eye. We are not to be anxious but strong and unafraid, not because of what we will do to ourselves or for ourselves, but because of what God will do to us or for us. Make sense? Now, I recently read an article from the magazine 1843. It's a magazine about culture and life, and the headline article was titled, Hippies Incorporated. It explained how and why some of the practices of the 60s have infiltrated corporate America. So things like meditation and mindfulness. The reporter interviews executives in high-stress jobs at a retreat center called Isalin, which in the 60s had seen, quote, hordes of hippies traveling down from San Francisco to camp there and take vast quantities of psychedelics. George Harrison flew in by helicopter for a sitar session with Ravi Shankar. And now the, this place in Central California is a retreat center for the highly paid, overworked, and overstressed. The author writes dismissively of his experience of a sacred sound journey, loud meditative gongs. He writes, the theory, as I understand it, is that stress and anxiety cause our cells to vibrate at suboptimal frequencies. The sound bowl and other instruments restore them to vibrational harmony. In practice, it's a bit like trying to sleep on a washing machine. I mention this article for two reasons. First, it shows the great lengths to which people will go to relieve and reduce stress in their lives. Second, to draw a contrast. The use of the passive voice in this passage from Isaiah suggests that the command not to worry, not to be anxious, is not based on some technique or trick of the trade that you or I will do in order to reduce our experience of stress. Nor is the command not to worry based on our ability to control the things which cause us stress. No, the encouragement to be strong, to be unafraid, is based solely on what God will do. He will intervene, and he will intervene 
comprehensively. Take a look at the passage with me. Notice that God's intervention will address his natural world. Do environmental concerns cause you anxiety? Well, God will one day intervene, and the desert shall rejoice. Look at verse 5 through 7. Do health concerns cause you anxiety? God will intervene and intervene comprehensively and every infirmity wiped away. Do moral concerns cause you anxiety? Are you troubled by what you see in others, what you watch on TV? Are you troubled by what you see in yourselves? One day God will intervene and establish a highway of holiness. Why are we not to worry? Because of God's promised future comprehensive intervention for our good. Third and final, note the style of writing. This uses figurative language, not literal. The language of simile, like a deer. This figurative language or the, the, the use of figurative, figurative imagery to describe God's, sorry, Isaiah 35 uses figurative imagery to describe God's coming salvation. The dry desert rejoices, the lame leap like a deer, the burning sand is now a pool of life-giving water. These are all images, figurative language, which is used in order to capture your imagination. Two weeks ago, my wife and I went to the National Gallery of Art. We try to go there every once in a while. We participated in a lecture called Learning the Sea. The docent observed that most people spend seven seconds in front of any one piece of art in the National Gallery, seven seconds. We spent an hour, based upon this docent's instruction, and we sat in front of a piece of art, and we observed, and we meditated. The use of figurative language in this passage engages your imagination and invites your contemplation. In order to be unafraid and unanxious in this present moment, you need more than seven minutes of reflection about God. Seven minutes, seven seconds of contemplation about God. We need to meditate on God, his reliable character. We need to remember his faithfulness in the past. We need to meditate on images like we have in Isaiah, images that describe his future faithfulness. The desert shall rejoice. Take a look at the slide that I have for you. This is a, this is a picture, I believe, of our last overseas trip. Ignore the handsome gathering in the foreground. Just look at the background. That is this, this is a crater about four hours north of, actually four to six hours north of Nairobi. Very arid, very dry. This is in the peak of the, uh, the drought, or the dry season. Take a look at this picture. Again, ignore the handsome couple in the foreground, but would you believe that that is the same landscape? You wouldn't have thought it had I not told you. Go, but, but go back and forth. Notice the ridge line. And go to the, to the, the uh, now the latter slide as well. Same landscape. The only difference is someone, something intervened. 
The transformation is that remarkable. And all of these images are calculated to engage your imagination. One day, the arid land will burst into bloom. That may not mean much to the 21st century Alexandrian, but it sure meant a heck of a lot to the first century Palestinian. One day the lame will leap like a deer. The burning sand will be a pool of life-giving water. All of these images are calculated to engage your imagination. This is not theological language of justification, sanctification, revelation. This is an image calculated to speak to your heart. In sum, the use of present tense reminds us that the remedy for anxiety is never found in the present moment. Number two, the use of the passive voice reminds us that the remedy for anxiety is never found in what you and I can do. Number three, the use of figurative language reminds us that the remedy for anxiety is not found in superficial knowledge of God's goodness. No, here's the biblical remedy for your anxiety. Contemplation of God's future intervention for your good. Period. As followers of Christ, we believe that Jesus fulfilled in part what God promised through Isaiah. He began the type of restoration that we see in the natural world, recorded in verses 1 through 4. He calmed the seas, turned water into wine. He began the type of restoration of the physical world we see in verses 5 through 7. He gave sight to the blind, he made the lame walk, he raised the dead. Jesus began the process of moral restoration which is anticipated in verses 8 through 10. He forgave sins. He restored the broken. He restored the outcast. His work is not done, but his work has begun. Jesus will return and finish the work that he described here. So, in your moment of anxiety, turn to Christ and meditate on him. Meditate on what he did, restoring nature, reviving health, forgiving sin, meditating on what he will do. And as you meditate on him, that knot in your belly may begin to unwind. The tension in your shoulders begin to relax, and he will strengthen your weak hands, make feeble knees firm, Replace anxiety with strength and fear with courage.